Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. David Davenport is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, the author of a couple of things, actually, a a really thought-provoking short piece entitled War is the New Normal in Washington, which is obviously part and parcel of his new book, How Public Policy Became War. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. So it's a pleasure to be talking to David today about uh, his recent writings and his thinkings about our nation's politics. Uh, David, uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Good to be with you. So I'm reading this piece I got in my hand. Um, You say Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal in 1933 was America's French Revolution. That's a strong statement. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, the French Revolution, of course, changed everything uh, in France, political, social, uh, economic, And we think that uh, Gordon Lloyd, my co-author, and I think that that's exactly what Franklin Roosevelt did. He was an early practitioner of the Rahm Emanuel School of Public Policy. It's a shame to let a good crisis go to waste. And so the crisis of the New Deal really gave Roosevelt an opportunity to change the presidency and the executive branch in particular, and really how government and our society function and operate. Well, yeah, you make the point that it, it fundamentally changed the way legislation gets passed. What do you mean? Well, and of course, even before we get to legislation, Roosevelt was what we call the emperor of executive orders. He did uh, 3,500 executive orders, which is still a record to this day. But he also, as uh, historian David Kennedy uh, pointed out in his great book on the Depression and New Deal, he, quote, wrote Congress like a skilled jockey, unquote. Uh, Previously, Congress drafted its own bills, but Roosevelt started being a legislator in chief, drafting the bills. Uh, sent his famous bank bill uh, over uh, to uh, Congress in the morning, passed in the afternoon. Very few saw it, much less read it. 
And uh, so the idea of the president driving the legislative agenda really was born under Roosevelt. Just out of curiosity, was that the beginning of the president writing the budget and Congress uh, rubber stamping it, or did that happen at a different time? I would say that happened a little later, but he certainly built out the branch, executive branch, in a way that that could happen. Uh, You know, we talk about Roosevelt and all of his alphabet soup agencies that he created, and that became, you know, the enormous administrative state that we all know about today. So he was also the father of the administrative state. And you fast forward and, you you know, you get further and further away from bipartisanship as you go and you get to today where politicians regularly tell us, including President Trump, that, look, we need to have this many senators and this many House members to accomplish what we want to accomplish. In other words, you have to have the entire number of people you need for a vote. The idea of bipartisan, of getting some people from the other side, just seems to be completely not even part of the equation anymore. You're you're absolutely right. To the extent Congress does something, and it really doesn't do a lot these days, um, it's all basically on party line votes. Uh, Party line voting was... In the 60% as, as recently as the 1970s, it's approaching 90% today. No kidding. In the 70s, it was 60% would vote yeah. party line. Another, another That's incredible. That's impossible to imagine now. Yeah, no, of course. And, and as you say, sometimes we even hold the bill in secret. We wait until we have 51 votes in the Senate, for example, of our party. Uh, we spring it on the Senate with very little debate, no chance really for amendments, no committee deliberations much as we used to have, and we take a party line vote and move on. Obamacare, party line vote, Trump's tax reform, party line vote. We do everything important these days, it seems like, by party line. Which makes you wonder why you even have the human beings there. Why not just vote for a, <laughs> you know, a, a, a Congress representation and then a computer vote? <laughs> well, who would hold those oh-so-dramatic uh, committee hearings that we, right. we all watch on C-SPAN? Uh, so, David, you know, I, this is coming together in my mind. I read a piece, I believe it was by Kevin Williamson, who was talking about, um, and, and this is similar to some of your thoughts as well, but when you have a war on something, and and there are wars being declared all the time now, or warlike verbiage being used, that justifies you... Uh, suspending the standard uh, practices, morality, the rights of people, uh, your restraints. I mean, it's war. It's all out war. So obviously, you know, if some people have to be jailed and killed and hurt, or, or <laughs> that's fine and dandy. And and I know you write about that, but you're also talking about how once you make that declaration, you can be warlike in your passing of legislation to get the the big war going. That's really interesting to me. You're right. I mean, if if you go back to LBJ and the war on poverty and right on through the war on crime, the war on drugs, Carter's war on energy consumption, uh, the war on terror, uh, a great deal of public policy is done today in the name of war. And one, one reason that's done is it allows the federal government to take over things that used to be state or local, such as crime or drugs. And then it allows the president to take things over and rely very little on the Congress uh, because we're at war. You know, we don't have time for a lot of debate, a lot of legislative hearings. We, we're at war. So, and, and, of course, these wars never end. All of the wars I just mentioned are still in effect. Yeah, and then getting back to the whole uh, party line vote thing, along with the war, the war is against the other party. They're the ones trying to stop all that is good and decent happening in the country. So you can't you can't be bipartisan and give on anything, or you'll be primaried by your own party. Right, so it's uh, warlike in every aspect. Crazy. Yeah. If you, in fact, if you, if you're in the legislature, if you're in Congress, 
and you want to do something bipartisan, we call you a gang and put you in a room closet. You know, the only bipartisan work is the gang of six or the gang of 12 that decides something has to be done. And then they have to hide in a small office or a broom closet to try to uh, work out some kind of arrangement. And then, as you say, they're likely to be punished later in uh, by having a primary opponent. So it, it it's seems, not easy on those people. It seems to me, though, that the public is demanding this. I mean, you know, the public really punishes people that stray away from, uh, the, well, the party line votes. H- how do we get out of this or do we get out of this? Well, I, I think that uh, two things I, that I would think would be important. One, uh, there's a baseball cap back in Washington. You could imagine it. It's red. It's been worn on a presidential campaign. But this cap says, make Congress great again. Hmm. It seems like we do have to make Congress at least relevant again. You know, it has to kind of claw back the war, some of its war powers that it's given to the president. It has to claw back spending power. Uh, and then second, we have to make Congress more deliberative again. The U.S. Senate has long been called the world's greatest deliberative body, but it hardly deliberates. Uh, I think, for one thing, we need to return powers to committees and committee chairs that have now devolved to the majority and minority leaders who are essentially party representatives. So uh, those are some steps I think we could take in the right direction. You know, I tend to try to avoid cliches, but I can't resist in this case. Uh, To what extent do you think we get the government we deserve, truly? Well... I, to be honest with you, I do. I think the the uh, people in Washington are essentially driving this. Um, yes, they managed to co-opt the people in it and get them to vote for it, but the people, by and large, I think most studies show, uh, don't share this kind of warlike notion of politics. In fact, they're relatively disgusted by it. But uh, party leaders spend a lot of money, uh, and and the media fans of the flames of this uh, sometimes. Uh, to get people to think we are at war and we have to hate the other people and we have to beat them back. I don't think the people by their nature are really uh, committed to that approach to politics, but I think the the government and the, and the leaders in Washington have sort of led us into this. Well, the contagion is definitely caught on, though. I mean, when I'm not doing this, I'm I'm into music and musicians and that sort of thing. And, man, some of my favorite musicians are just permanently angry. And, <laughs> and way off to one side. I'm sure you can guess which side. But um, so, yeah, it's it's out there. <laughs> oh, it's, and it's tough. Tough. I've even had to give up reading a couple of my favorite sports writers because they've gone over to the oh, political yeah. side. I, I think, wait, I want to read the sports page and yeah, I find talk, out about sports. I talk about this all the time. I read I read the New York Times a lot. And it doesn't matter if it's a book review or an article about a recipe or a sports story, as you mentioned. <laughs> Trump gets worked in somehow. Didn't you find a gardening story? Gardening, that, yeah. yes. Yes, yes, things you should grow during these tough Trump times. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. But so because being in the media as we are, we've noticed how the fixation on the one person, the president, is just so overwhelming as if the president does everything. And our our attitude that the only election that matters is the presidential election filters out into how much power apparently the president thinks he or she should grab. Or does it work that way or does it work the other way around? I can't tell. Well, I, 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 it is ironic because, you know, in, in the earlier days of our republic, we thought that the primary representative that was relevant to us was our own member of Congress. Sure. And you're right that presidents over time have taken the view that, no, we're the only one that's really elected by the people. You know, those are, representatives are just elected by a small number of people. We're elected by everybody, or at least voted on by everybody. And, and presidents, I think, have been very clever at how they amass power using executive orders, 
uh, using uh, national emergencies. We, you, you and I live under 31 states of national emergency, which increases presidential power. All these wars we mentioned earlier on various domestic problems. So presidents have taken over uh, way more power than was intended, though I think Congress has acquiesced in some of that. They've been happy to give up their power. Because they're cowards. Because they don't want to have a vote that they could pay held to on a war. They uh, they just they, they take the most cowardly track and let whoever's president decide. No, you're quite right. I happened to be in Washington a couple of years ago when it looked like Congress was going to have a major debate on Syria and what we should do in that war theater. And I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. But instead, they decided to adjourn and go home and campaign early. And one congressman said, I don't know if he was being facetious or not, we just like the president to bomb the place and tell us about it later. Wow. (laughs) We don't want to take that hard vote. Which is what happens. That's remarkably candid, I think. Yep. What is it they say? A gaffe is when somebody accidentally catches a politician <laughs> telling the truth. Absolutely. No, yeah. it's a tough. It's a tough environment, and I think it'll take quite a bit to. to I, I think of it as as we need to just get out a bunch of tugboats. We're not going to blow up the system we have. It's like a big ocean liner that's moving forward with a lot of speed and power and money. But we're just going to have to get out the tugboats. Better civic education, more civic engagement by the people. Congress clawing back powers, becoming more deliberative again. It's going to take all those tugboats to kind of nudge this ocean liner back. Yeah, that sounds like the sort of thing that happens over decades. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. It took us a few decades to get here. It'll probably take even more to fix it. Is there even, uh, does, does, what's the term? Civil, uh, uh, civilian, what's the, uh, the, they used to call it, civics. Yeah. I was hung up on civil. Um, does civics classes even exist anymore? Is that notion anywhere in America's academia? Well, that's a big uh, uh, hobby horse of mine that I ride. I think that's part of the deeper problem. Uh, the last time American students were tested on civic education, uh, a few years ago, eighth graders, which was the only level where the test was given, only 18% were proficient in American history, and only 23% were uh, proficient in government and civics. And that's, that's, I think, a crisis-level problem, and you're right, it's not being taught in the schools. A lot of times when it is taught, it's a very negative view of America that's uh, presented. Right. Uh, and uh, we're, we're training up a generation not only to not understand America, but not to love America. Right. You know, that's the thing. You can't even suggest civics and patriotism without somebody, perhaps one of those musicians I mentioned, uh, spitting about, uh, you know, jingoism and, and, uh, you know, Indian genocide and slavery and the rest of it. I mean, it's just it's like, well, getting back to our theme, it's all or nothing, one side or the other, which is really kind of a sick way to look at the, the world. No, the, the Howard Zinn wrote a case book, textbook many years ago called A People's History of the United States that's one of the most used textbooks in the country. Yeah, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and continually flush his rough drafts down the toilet until it became so frustrated he gave up on the it's project. It's shocking to me that book is actually the textbook in so many classrooms. And, and you're right. I mean, it's take the founding, for example. I mean, the founding in Zinn's view was all about, you know, wealthy property owners setting up checks and balances not to protect the republic, but to protect their own property. Uh, Columbus and other discoverers were here simply to rape and rob. And and as my co-author of, of several books, Gordon Lloyd, likes to say, it's hard to love an ugly founding. And so if you portray the very founding of our country as something ugly, our, our kids are not going to love it. 
Yeah, yeah. Hey, this is just personal curiosity, David. It's kind of off the the topic, but uh, I'm always interested in how co-authors work together. Which end do you handle, and uh, which end does Gordon uh, Lloyd do, or how do you how do you mesh that stuff? Well, Gordon and I have become very close friends over the years. We started by writing, I don't know, 20 or 30 newspaper columns together, and then we graduated to books. And basically, we work together because we enjoy it and we learn from each other. So we get together every couple of months for two or three days in person to debate and sort out the issues in the book. And then we each go away and and do some separate drafting. In the end, one of us has to do kind of the final draft so that it speaks with one voice. And uh, you know, we have our little uh, – he, he claims he provides the words and I provide the music. I say, well, occasionally I come up with a word or two. <laughs> but, uh, it, it, no, it is tricky, but we've certainly learned to do it together and, and enjoy it. You are the president of Pepperdine University from 85 to 2000. What's your view of college campuses these days? The problem you mentioned earlier, which is now politics is everywhere, sports pages, gardening recipes, I saw that 25 years ago in college when – Uh, Political correctness wasn't just coming up in political science classes, but had crept over into economics and into biology and science and climate change and art. And uh, I think what's happened is that that sort of the 60s generation, if you will, uh, has taken over the faculties and administrations of lots of colleges. And uh, uh, patience with uh, other points of view is, is disappeared. And The irony is what college is supposed to be about is diversity of ideas. Uh, And and it seems like on campus these days we're interested in diversity of everything else, but not of ideas. I I think it's very unfortunate. Well, it's it's beyond perverse. It's uh, as if hospitals became hostile to the sick. I mean, it's it's why you're there. Um, Precisely. On on a similar topic, um, I know you're a Californian. Uh, Is there hope for... Well, I, at times I call it corruptifornia. At times I call it calunicornia because we've completely lost our grasp on reality. Uh, is there hope for California? I, I'm afraid relatively little. I've been here for 40 years myself and and am thinking it might be time for me to give up. I, I sort of have a pendular view of history that things swing hard in one direction and then they finally start to push back. In the 40 years I've been in California, it's still all swinging politically, economically, financially in one direction. Uh, when when Jerry Brown was the best hope conservatives had going, you know you're a state that's, that's in trouble. So the only hope I really find is occasionally at the local or regional level. I just don't see much hope at the state level. Wow. Yeah, wow. I, do, I don't want to be a downer. Calling Mayflower van lines. Yeah, we don't want to be a downer show, downer podcast, just downer people in general, right. but... Right. Uh, you know, not not everything is a pendulum. Some things are just a continuum until it falls apart. <laughs> that's and and I think that's the track California is is on. Uh, the the long term, the economics of that don't work. Uh, there's probably some real reckoning coming in in a lot of counties and cities uh, over the public pension uh, mistakes and, and guaranteed. Problems. Yeah. The state has ignored that, even when they brag about a balanced budget at the state level. Well, let's add on top of that free health care for illegals and see if that fixes the problem. <laughs> exactly. So it's a, it's a tough uh, situation, and I'm afraid uh, Gavin Newsom and, and a legislature that, that has two-thirds support of one party is likely to make things worse. David, really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can do it again before too long. 
Thank you, gentlemen. It sounds like you have a good fix on things, and or at least we agree on a lot of things. Yeah, this is why I drink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> David, great to talk to you. Thanks again. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye-bye. Is, is having a good fix on things are all going to hell and nothing can be done to stop it? Is there any advantage to that? <laughs> well, at least or you won't you, be caught with your pants down. Or would you be better off thinking, I believe everything is fine and will get even better? No, with and, my, with, if, if it all comes down, I want to be ready. Sword in one hand, shield in the other. <laughs> Or a couple of guns, better yet. Um, no, it's, yeah, I just, I, I'm a realist. You can't choose to be a realist or not a realist, and it's it's ugly. Although, getting back to the national stuff, identifying, you know, the the on the ill health, the problems, the whole warlike everything, it just it may take a time for those ideas to spread, but I hope they will. I think it's the consolidation of. Power and attention, both of them. Right. Power and attention in the presidency. I always remember Bob Woodward talking about in his time in Washington, D.C., he's seen cabinet positions go from something important. These are the people that ran the department and and advised the president. Mm -hmm. So now they're just ceremonial. Presidents now run every department. They pick somebody to be the cabinet chief to go out to ribbon cuttings or whatever. Wow. But the president runs it. Wow. And just so many different things have gone that direction of consolidating everything. I make this pledge. When I am president, y'all can run your department. <laughs> I, I may not even answer your calls. Maybe on my fourth or eighth year, I uh, might say, Department of Interior, what do you do now? How's it going over there at State? <laughs> I'm the uh, Secretary of Labor, sir. Oh, yeah. How's it going at Labor? Good? Good. Glad to hear. <laughs> what do you like better, the housing or the urban development? <laughs> Well, sir, I didn't. I didn't, I really didn't want an answer. But uh, thanks for stopping by the White House. Anyway, here's here's a ceremonial ashtray for a souvenir ashtray. <laughs> Extra large. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.